Good morning, church. If we've not met before, my name is Liam Hardy. I'm the pastor here at Connecting Church Athens, and I just want to say thank you so much for coming celebrating Easter uh, with us. I know um, Jamie's already said it, but church, it's just already been a, a sweet weekend uh, together. On Friday night, we came into this room and we celebrated the crucifixion of Jesus and, and the work of Christ on the cross. And today we come and we celebrate that the story doesn't end with the crucifixion, but that Jesus is alive. And you know, that's really, there's two types of people in our world. The ones who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who believe that the crucifixion is the end of the Jesus story, and then there are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that the crucifixion really was just the beginning of the work of Christ as he stepped into his kingdom. And when Christianity caught wildfire in the Roman Empire and and all these Christians were believing in Christ, the Romans made fun of Christians. They mocked Christians because we worship a crucified king. I mean, think about it. If you don't believe in Jesus, Christ on a cross is a perceived weak moment. It's the defeat of Christ. And archaeology shows us that the Romans made fun of the Christians for worshiping this king. And I want to show you this by showing you the Alexamenus Graffito. This is a stone carving that was put on the side of a wall in a Roman home. Let's see if this cartoon comes up on the screen for us. Do you all see this? This was put on a Roman home on the wall. And you can see this is a pretty crude little cartoon that we have here. Uh, The person who carved this into stone is probably not going to get a scholarship to an art school anytime soon. But what's going on here? In the bottom corner, we have a a man. This is Alex Zemenis. And he's got his hand in the air. And he's looking at a cross. And what's on the cross? A figure that is mostly man, except for the head of a donkey, this being a mocking depiction of our king. And beneath, you can see there are some letters, and it's a Roman sentence that says in English, Alexamenus is worshiping his God. And this is the mockery, that we worship a crucified king. But church, all of this mocking rests on one assumption, and that's this. Jesus is still dead. But if Jesus is risen, as John is going to claim in John chapter 20, he's going to tell us, I saw the empty tomb with my own eyes, then Jesus really is the Son of God. All of his claims are true, and he is king of the universe. Your faith, our faith, rests on the resurrection. Paul was the first one to admit this. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. He said, if you don't believe in the power of God, then you're going to think the cross is foolish, that our king went to the cross to die for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19 says, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then also you have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. Christ is not raised. Our faith is foolish. And we're still in our sins. And we might as well just pack it all up and go home this morning. Praise be to God. He is alive. So we might as well just pack it all up and go home. You know, that's what the disciples did, right? Jesus was crucified on the cross. And what did they do? They just went home. Imagine following this guy for three years, learning from him. He's teaching you about the kingdom of God. And then suddenly, as we started last week, Jesus is dead. What would you do? 
And we're going to see the, the day after the crucifixion, all was quiet until when we pick up in John chapter 20. And I see three things in this passage I want to talk about. The first one is in verse 1. And first we see Mary's discovery. Read with me, John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. We didn't spend much time on it in John chapter 19 last week, but after uh, Jesus was crucified, two men went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. One man we've already been introduced to in John chapter 3, his name is Nicodemus, and then another man named Joseph of Arimathea goes and they ask for the body of Jesus and they lay him in Joseph of Arimathea is tomb. And then the body needs to be addressed uh, or embalmed and dressed and, and prepared for burial, but they don't do it on Saturday. Why don't they do it on Saturday? Because of the Sabbath, Sabbath and Passover. This was the Jews' most holy day, and it would have been a violation of the Sabbath to touch the dead body. But we see Mary, another gospel tells us that she was not alone. She went with other women early in the morning on Sunday while it was still dark. For the Jews, the day began at sunrise, and so we're told she goes as early as she can to honor Jesus' body. Before we talk about the empty tomb and what they saw, I just, I just want us to, to sit here for a minute and think, would I honor a dead king? Would you honor a dead king? Think about it, following Jesus for so many years. Notice, we're talking about the ministry of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary, and the other women who honor Christ even while he's dead. We're not talking about the disciples. The disciples pack it up and go home, and a select few come and honor Jesus even when he's dead. Church, you and I are not going to have that opportunity to honor a dead king because Jesus is risen, and he's not dying again. He's coming back in glory and power, but they had a very important ministry here to honor Christ, even in his most perceived weakest moment. You know, we don't do this in our culture. We don't celebrate and honor people who look like they're losing. All we got to do is look at the world of sports. We don't do this. You know what we do? We bandwagon. You know what I mean when I mean say bandwagon? If you're a basketball fan, do you remember several years ago when everybody was a Golden State Warriors fan? Why? Because they were good. And because they won several championships, I found myself pulling for them as well. I'm so tired of everybody getting on the UGA bandwagon, amen? I mean, so many people win two national championships, but we're not bandwagoners from Athens because we remember, and I know there's some Georgia Southern people in here, when we beat Georgia Southern in overtime, that was not a good moment for our school. We were there in the ups and downs, and church, are you with your king honoring him in the ups and downs? In the best moments of your life, celebrating him, worshiping him, but also in the worst moments in life, with the darkest places of your heart, do you honor the king? Would you take care of a dead king? And church, we're going to see in John chapter 20, Mary sees the resurrected Christ and she talks with him. And we think, why would Jesus appear to Mary? Maybe it's because she just showed up and she honored him. She came and saw because she came. And she was around the things of God. And so she saw him first. She showed up even in this moment and she encounters Christ. So when she comes into the first, in the first verse, she sees that the, the tomb has been rolled away or the, the stone has been rolled away. And notice she does not get excited immediately. In fact, she grieves the fact that the stone is rolled away. Look at verse two with me. 
So, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary goes, she sees that the stone has been rolled away and she goes and tells the disciples and we're going to follow the perspective of John and Peter here. And as I said, Mary's not celebrating the fact that the stone is rolled away. What does she believe has happened? She says that they have taken the Lord away. She doesn't, she's not coming and saying he's alive, he's resurrected. She thinks somebody has stolen the body. There's really two options here or possibilities of what she thought had happened. The more unlikely possibility is that she would have thought that somebody would have robbed the grave, which is a pretty common practice in this time period because people would be buried with valuables. So that could have been one option, that she thought somebody had come in and stolen the body and looted the tomb. More likely, though, she believed that the Roman soldiers or even Pilate himself dug up the body to mock Jesus more and continue to have fun with him. Can you imagine This is your Lord. This is your teacher. This is the one that you followed. He dies, and you're grieving that and processing that, but you find a little bit of comfort in it. At least we have his body, and at least he's in a tomb. And then you go to the tomb. The stone's rolled away. The body's not there, and she thinks, oh, this isn't over. They're still mocking my Lord. She thinks the mocking has Continued. And so immediately in verse 3, Peter and the other disciple, that's John, they go forth and they go to the tomb. We're told in verse 4, it's kind of a funny note, they were running together. And the other disciple, John, writing this gospel, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John's just got to say, hey, we were neck and neck for a little while, but I want you to know I beat him to the tomb. I thought it was interesting this week as I was studying So many commentators actually believe that the fact that John got to the tomb first has some spiritual meaning. And they were going on to talk about their apostolic ministries and how they were different in the book of Acts. And that's why John got to the tomb first. I was laughing at that idea. I thought that was hilarious that people do that. D.A. Carson in his commentary on the gospel of John had the best explanation for verse four. And he said, Peter was married and he probably had eaten too many home cooked meals. And that's why he made it there. And uh, Livy and I are celebrating five years in June. And every Wednesday when I go play football with the youth, I realize I'm more like Peter these days than John. John gets to the tomb first. Second thing I want to talk about here is the disciples' investigation. What happens when they get to the tomb? Verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. That's John. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face, face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Good job. Jesus made his bed. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. This is John, and he saw and believed. Verse 8 is a big deal. We've talked about in John 20, verse 31, we'll look at it next week, but we've been citing this verse through our whole study. John said, I've written these things so that you may believe Jesus, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And last week in John 19, John told us, he said, I was standing at the foot of the cross. I saw Jesus beaten and tortured and died, and I'm testifying because I saw it with my own eyes, and I want you to believe. This whole gospel is that you would believe in the power of God. And in verse 8, it says, John believed. He says, when I walked into that tomb and I saw the face cloth and I saw the linen wrappings, he said, I 
believed. Now we know that we, are, we enter into right relationship with God through our faith in him. So the question is, did John get saved here in this moment when he saw the empty tomb? And I would argue, no. John was already saved when he went to the tomb that day. And the proof text I would use for that is John chapter 13, familiar passage of scripture. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And we don't have a conversation between Jesus and John during the foot washing, but we have a conversation between Peter and Jesus. And you guys know Peter, right? He's a little bit aggressive. He starts with, uh, Jesus, you will not wash my feet. And then he ends the conversation by saying, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head. That's how Peter works. And Jesus said, you are already clean, talking to the disciples, except, he says, but not all of you. He's talking about one. He's talking about Judas. And we would use that text to say that Peter was saved at the foot washing, even though he denied Jesus. And I believe all the disciples were. It wasn't like it was half and half. All of them, except for Judas, believed. So what should we do with verse 8 when it said that John saw and he believed. What is the nature of his belief? And I want you to understand here, this belief is not the saving faith that he had and confidence in the Messiah, but it is the incredible shift and perspective of the work of Christ that people in this time period experienced. I want you to hear me. For thousands of years, John and the prophets and King David and Adam and Eve and Abraham had been looking forward to what Christ would do when he came. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Jesus to come in the future and he would do a work. They didn't know what he would do. They knew he would step into a kingdom and he would establish his kingdom and save the people. And John's telling us here, he's saying, when I went to the tomb and I saw the stone rolled away, I got a crick in my neck from, from whiplash because for 4,000 years we had been looking forward and now we're looking back at what he's done. Do you see it, church? He's saying, for so, my whole life, I was looking forward to Jesus. I, I had followed him. I wonder what he's going to do. And he's saying, in this moment, I started to understand not what he was going to do, but what he had done. He was able to believe in the finished work of Christ because he saw it for the first time. And church, he says, I know what you're experiencing today, looking back on the power of the resurrection because it's already been finished. He saw and he believed. It was no more, I wonder what he's going to do. It's now, look at what he has done. He's alive. The story isn't over. Now, I don't want to give John too much credit here because of verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Something profound happened in John's heart in verse 8 when he saw the body gone and he saw the face cloth and the wrappings. But he did not understand everything. You're telling me that you can believe in Christ fully and not understand everything? For real? Wait, I thought I needed to understand it all and know all the answers and have the entire Bible memorized before I had faith in Jesus. Church, I sure hope that's not the case, because the older I get and the more I study God's word, I realize I will never understand everything, but I believe fully. In fact, church, I believe a desire to understand everything will inhibit your belief. 
a desire to understand everything and have everything figured out will actually stop you from believing because you're going to always need to ask one more question before you come to God. How can a good God allow this to happen? Why did he let me lose my job two years ago? Why would God make this? And he says, you don't need to understand everything. You need to believe. And church, some of us, I think we're tripping over our understanding on our way to belief. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, we need to have faith like a child. And I'm starting to understand a little bit of what that's like because I have a nine-month-old daughter. My daughter doesn't know nothing. I love her to death. She has no idea that we pay bills every month. She has no idea about rules of the road when I drive her in the car, but she's not freaking out about a lot of things I freak out every single day. And when she sees her mother, there is no lack of faith in Olivia's ability to provide for her. She just sticks her arm up in the air and say, come get me. And church, I wonder if some of us, we have, we have lost that kind of faith because we're trying to understand everything. And we're trying to figure out all the answers. Church, you don't have to understand. Praise God, we don't have to understand everything. We just have to believe in his finished work and that this morning the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. They see, they believe, even though they do not yet understand. Verse 10 is hilarious. They have this profound moment. He believes in his heart. They don't understand. Verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Peter and John race to the tomb. Something profound happens. Like, you want to go make a sandwich? Let's go home. And then they go. And they leave. And then in verse 11, we pick back up with Mary. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Think about this. Mary goes to the tomb early. She leaves the tomb. She goes back and tells the disciples. They go to the tomb. John, writing, tells us about his experience at the tomb. He leaves, and Mary is still there. She came, she saw, she went and told, she comes back, and she lingers at the tomb. And she encounters these angels. And again, she does not know that Jesus has risen from the grave. And what does she call Jesus in verse 13? She says, I do not know where they have taken my Lord. Y'all, Jesus is dead. His body is lifeless in her mind. And twice in this passage, she has said, they have taken the Lord, and I do not know where my Lord is. Her Lord is dead, but he's still the Lord. She says, I don't know where they've taken him, and I don't know where they have laid him. Keep going in verse 14. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. We know from other gospels that Mary was a person of means. She was very wealthy. She was just as wealthy as Joseph of Arimathea. She probably had her own tomb. And she says, you just tell me where the body is and I'll take care of the rest. It's interesting here. She's talking to Jesus and she doesn't know it's Jesus. That's the third thing I see in this passage. And that's Mary's conversation with Jesus. Somehow 
Jesus had disguised his appearance or cloaked himself in some way so that he was not recognizable to Mary. And we don't really know how this happened. It's not really important, but it is important to know that this is not Jesus' only time doing this. In Luke chapter 24, he encounters two followers on the road to Emmaus, and he spends time with them, he talks with them, and he eats with them. They don't even know it's Jesus. So Jesus makes a little bit of a habit, a habit, I say twice, of doing this after his resurrection. She's talking with him, but she doesn't know who he is, yet she still calls him my Lord. And I want to pause here really quickly because she's going to recognize Jesus and she's going to talk to Jesus just a little bit in our, in our passage. But I want to tell you how we're going to study the gospel of John for the next two weeks. In the gospel of John, when Jesus rises from the grave, he appears and has conversations with three different people. And this week, we're going to look at his conversation with Mary. Next week, he will talk to the disciples, but specifically to Thomas. And then the next week, he will talk to the disciples, but specifically Peter. And in these three conversations, we see two things. First, the person he talks to responds to Jesus with a declaration of faith and and proclaims this is who he is. They're testifying to the excellence of Christ, that it is him and that he is the son of God. And then the second thing we see is Jesus tells them how life's going to be different now that he's resurrected. Declaration of faith, and he's going to tell them a little bit how life is going to be different. Because maybe you're like me. Maybe, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but I think most people are. And you hate change. Anybody else hate change? Right? And just imagine with me, you spend three years following Jesus, and you've seen him do incredible things. And then Jesus dies on the cross and you're grieving the separation of that relationship. And then suddenly you're hanging out by the tomb and you see Jesus again. There would be a tendency in all of us who hate change to think, great, Jesus is alive. Now everything can go back to the way it was before. Now we can follow Jesus again. And hey, I'll even go to Samaria again and we can watch him heal people again and things will go back to the way they were before. And Jesus is going to teach us in these encounters. He's alive and that's amazing, but things will never be the same. The story isn't over and there is a new chapter. And what is that chapter? It is that Jesus is going back to the Father. He's sending the Holy Spirit to empower the church. That's you and me to go and share the message of the gospel. Things aren't going back to the way they were before. A new chapter is beginning. So let's look at this encounter together. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. First, we see her declaration of faith. Now, I have a note in my Bible, in a parenthetical statement there, which says, she says, Rabbani, which means teacher. Does anybody else have that? It's a helpful note and an unhelpful note at the same time. Because if I asked you to to, to tell me who Jesus is um, based on your faith, teacher might be a weak word, right? We'd be looking for a little bit more. He's more than a teacher. He's the son of God. He's king of the universe, things, things like that. But this word actually means more than just teacher. If I asked you to say just teacher in Hebrew, how what would you say? Rabbi. So what's the difference between rabbi and rabbinai? In rabbinic tradition, rabbinai rabbinai was a term that was used for the head rabbi, literally rabbi of rabbis. In fact, some biblical scholars believe that this is a combination of two words, rabbi and adonai, which means 
Lord. She's communicating here that he is teacher and Lord, which makes perfect sense because so far in John 20, she's called him Lord twice. She turns and she says, Rabbi, my teacher and my Lord. In verse 16, or excuse me, 17, we see how things are going to be different now that Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, we don't know exactly why Jesus said in verse 17, stop clinging to me. But there's some, at least uh, we can read into the text a little bit, maybe to assume that as she uh, fell at his feet, maybe grasped his feet, started worshiping him. Maybe she hugged him and he says, stop clinging to me. Not like, you gross, like get off. But hey, things are going to be different. Devotion to the Lord will not be clinging to Jesus anymore because he's not going to be around much longer. He says, do not cling, go and tell. He said, you've come to the tomb. You've seen that I've resurrected. You came and you saw what the Lord has done. Now I want you to go and tell. And church, this is how we define devotion to the Lord in this chapter. Do you know that? What is devotion to our resurrected king? Is it understanding all the scriptures and memorizing all the verses and showing up to church on Sunday morning? Good job, everybody. Jesus tells us. Stop clinging to me. Go and tell. And all day long, you and I can say, I love the Lord. I love Jesus. Well, are you doing what he's commanded us to do in this chapter of the story? People who have come and seen, go and tell. And church, this is how we need to define success as a church, success as a believer, the ability and the desire to go and tell other people that the grave is empty and that he is risen. If the tomb really is empty and Christ is raised, then we need to understand the rest of the story because the story's not over, Right? The story's over, we can just close the book and be done, but we need to understand what is God's plan and what is he doing in the world because it's not over and he is risen. If I asked you in the Bible, where would you go to find the end of the story? You might quickly say Revelation, but did you know Revelation is not the end of the story? It's just the last chapter that we have. And Revelation ends with Jesus coming back and establishing a new heaven and new earth. And that's not even the end of the story. That's just the beginning of what he's doing. Christ is raised. His life is eternal. He wants you to partake in that. And so the story will literally never end because Christ is raised. But I want to tell you the last chapter that we have. It's a beautiful picture of people worshiping God. And because we know the last chapter or the next, the end of this chapter, we know what our mission is. This is God's desire for the world. It's in Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked. This is John writing in Revelation. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. God said, this is what's next. A multitude of people, more people than are here today. He says, we can't even count them. And they don't all look like me. They speak different languages. They have different skin colors. They have different cultural backgrounds. People from all over the world. He's not just the king in Winterville. He's not just the king in the state of Georgia. He's the king of the universe. And people from all nations around the throne worshiping. How did they describe him? The lamb. Which means that this is a story that will never end. And it'll keep going and just getting better and better. But we will always remember what he did on the cross. And we will always worship him because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, which means we will never forget John 19 and John 20. And we will always worship him for it. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up. And we're going to sing a song called Christ is Risen. And the chorus part of this song says throughout all eternity, our song will be the same. And I can't think of a better thing for us to sing on Easter Sunday than to recognize for eternity we will worship our King for what he did on Easter Sunday when he rose from the grave. And I want to challenge you this morning to search your heart and ask the question, is the story of Jesus over or is it still got more to go? Is he dead or is he alive? And is your life aligned with his story or is your life running the opposite direction of his story, running against his story? And I just want to challenge you to recognize that Jesus is alive, he's risen, he has all authority in heaven on earth. And the best thing you can do for your life is to align your life to his story because his story wins. His story is the main thing. Church, I can't think of a better thing coming out of Easter for each one of us to say, I'm on board with his kingdom. I'm on board with his plan. He is risen and he is king. And because he has all authority, he has authority over my life. Church, I'm thankful for you. I hope you have a great day. If you've got uh, plans with family, hanging out, celebrating church. Just remember, the song we're about to sing now will be the song we sing for all eternity. Hallelujah. God has risen. Will you pray with me? Father, you're so good. Lord, we're thankful that because Christ is raised, we know that our prayers reach the throne. God, and that you are so good and so worthy of praise. Lord, in this place tonight, Lord, if there's anybody who believes the story is over, God, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, convict them, turn their hearts toward you. See Christ as high and lifted up on a cross, but also as raised at the right hand of the Father today. So God, would you be honored in this time of worship, Lord? This time is all about Jesus. Give you the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.